Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. So glad you could join us. It's going to be a really, really cool show today. I have Bob Fussell on me with me, and he's written a book called Catching the Ascension Wave, Everything You Need to Know About the Coming Great Awakening, the Sacred Planet. Right now, the galactic superwave, a galactic superwave is dramatically raising the vibratory rate of our planet and everyone on it. As Bob explains, in order to catch this wave of ascension and survive and thrive during the coming Great Awakening, we must undergo a personal transformation to raise our vibration and align with the higher self within each of us. He explores the forces working to advance our planetary ascent to higher consciousness, as well as those seeking to block it. He looks at the role of the ancient builder race from Venus and other ET races, such as the Greys and the Draco Reptilians, in our evolutionary development and technological advancements. And he exposes startling details of our secret space program, the New World Order, and the depopulation agenda, as well as explaining how the precision of the equinoxes is directly influencing Earth's awakening and how the dance between the forces of darkness and light actually shows conscious, conscious, actually allows consciousness to evolve. He shares information on meditations, tools, and techniques to transmute the energies blocking access to your higher self and reveals how the infusion of higher dimensional energy is impacting planet Earth and each of us. Unveiling the incoming new energetic configurations for the Earth, he details how the Great Awakening is nothing less than the birth of a new humanity and how, by raising your vibration, you can help in the the co-creation of heaven on Earth. 
Welcome to the show, Bob. Well, uh, Barbara, hi. I mean, that's uh, uh, that's quite an act to follow. Did I actually write a book like that? Wow. <laughs> it would, if you didn't, you really should. Yeah, well, um, I guess if, I did. I, I guess I did. It, uh, uh, you know, what, what I want to say about that is that uh, I've been actively seeking and searching, <laughs> really, uh, probably for all of my life, but I mean on a, on a, on a very deep level, uh, 1990 would be a good place to start, where uh, I thought, you know, I was doing pretty good. I was a teacher of breath work and doing pretty good with all of that and, uh, you know, thought uh, thought that I had a pretty good understanding of life and why we're here and what it's all about and, and, and the rest of that. And the universe tapped me on the shoulder and said, not so fast, buddy. Uh, there's a few more things that you just need to be aware of. And so I said, yeah, okay. Now, at the time, I had absolutely no idea what it was that I needed to be aware of. This just came to me intuitively, you know, in, in the form of just, yeah, intuitive messages would be, would be a good place to, would be a good way to say it. So I had no idea what it might be, what, it might be, what the exact message might be, but I realized it didn't matter because I knew that I had the entrance requirement and that was the absolute burning desire to find out. I mean, I was, I was, I was just thrilled, you know, to, Oh boy, there's more out there that I need to know about. I wonder what it could be. <laughs> and so, you know, I just went about living my life uh, knowing full well that it would be revealed to me. And of course that is exactly what happened. And of course how it initially came to me is in a way that I never, ever, never, ever would have suspected. And, uh, and that's what, I mean, uh, that's what uh, uh, you know has just made it, and it continues to be just an exciting adventure. So you know uh, what I want to say is just thanks so much for having me on. I get to spend two hours hanging out with you, talking about stuff <laughs> that look I'd be talking about this anyway. I'd be researching it anyway, whether I was writing about it or or not. And uh, I just get the best of both worlds. So here we are. Let's go. Let's do it. Oh yeah, I know what what happened to you um, happened to me in the seventies. I had <laughs> I call it my two by four moment when the universe <laughs> says, "Hey, you've got a job to do. Get off, you know, get off your duff and get going because there's a lot of stuff you need to do." And you know, you were I was hit with an amazing car accident that took me out of a career of teaching and put me into this field full time. But you had a much more severe um, takedown, so to speak, with your back. Yeah, I did. Well, it's I guess everything is all relative. Uh, but uh, so you got whacked over the head by a two by four. Two by four. I got hit over the head with a sledgehammer. <laughs> and, oh, you uh, did. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> this this goes way back in the day. I guess we go both go back, you know, into what you would be considered previous lifetimes for well, previous lifetimes for us too, really. Uh, oh, I'm sure. I go back to 1976. You know, when uh, uh, I I uh, came home from a baseball game and uh, uh, saw a dime on the floor, so I reached down to pick it up. And that was the last thing I did for quite some time because I just fell to the floor completely paralyzed, in unbelievable pain. I couldn't move. I couldn't. Eh. Yeah, it's uh, it's I not even 
doing, you know, thinking about it, but uh, uh, it, uh, it was clearly the worst thing that ever happened to me at the time, without a question. But the transformation uh-huh. is such that I now and, and, you know, since for a long time have realized that that's exactly what needed to happen, that in fact it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because, you know, I needed to get over, hit over the head with a sledgehammer in order to wake up. And uh, waking up for me meant starting from square one and realizing that since I'm not going to let a doctor do surgery on me, I heard too many horror stories there. And that chiropractors, even though I bless them, they helped me tremendously at the beginning, uh, diminishing returns started to set in. And I began to realize, well, there's only one option left, and that's I have to learn how to heal myself. Now, you talk about starting from asleep and unconscious. Goodness sakes, I, 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 I was definitely there and then some, so I had to start from square one and just find a way. Uh, and thank goodness the burning desire saw me through. It took a long time. Oh, yeah. But out of that long time, I developed, I, I developed something that not only worked for me, but uh, I'm so grateful to say that it's, it's helped uh, dramatically many hundreds, if not thousands, of other people, too. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I was so told I was going good. to die. Uh, <clears throat> I was told I was going to die by the doctors. And... My response to them was, I don't have time to die. Ah, good and, for you. <laughs> and it was, it was, you know, I look back on it and I think, where was I, you know, coming from at that point in time? And it was basically, you know, whatever this is, has got to be healed and go away because I have work to do. So, yeah, yeah I can relate you. to what you did. And, and I think everybody today is feeling the energy, is feeling that there's a shift, there's a change, something's going on. Their sleep That's patterns true. are changing or, you know, there's, there's just so much going on that, that they, they, they are at a loss. And I, I think what, you know, you talk about a great awakening, is this great awakening that's coming, is it, is it a cyclic great awakening or is it a one-shot deal great awakening? Well, I'm glad we got two hours, <laughs> so uh-huh. so we got some time to unpack this. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, goodness sakes, where where do you begin here? What I'm talking about ultimately is uh, is nothing less than the shift from into into a much higher wavelength uh, uh, aspect of life, uh, and to pick a starting point uh what i what i i guess i'd like to say about that is that uh there's uh oh goodness sakes the universe is so vast we can hardly begin to contemplate it yet at the same time as with as above so below as within so without it's also you can also go down to the minutest details uh because it's holographic but with that said uh, looking at the at the bigger picture in terms of you know what's going on out there and all that, uh, there's many different many many different ways of interpreting this one reality. There's only one 
there's only one spirit moving through all life, the one uh, infinite creator, if you will. Uh, yet there's many ways of interpreting that one reality, that one spirit that moves through all of life. And all of it is a function of consciousness. And that's a function of how high or how low your, or, uh, uh, your vibratory rate is. And so... Uh, what that leads us to is the, rea the, real the realization that there's many different, what I'm going to call dimensional worlds here. I also use the term density, density and dimensions. I use those terms interchangeably. But no matter what you call it, what is a dimensional world? Well, what it is is a wavelength universe. Uh, Nikola Tesla said, if you want to understand the universe, you've got to think of it in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. And, uh, I mean, yeah. uh, Tesla was pretty sharp guy, to say the least, even though he was, you know, <laughs> severely ostracized and wasn't allowed to do his work. You know, right. he wanted to give us free energy way back in the early 20th century, and he went to J.P. Morgan and said, look what I got. And J.P. Morgan says, well, I'll let you know. And, uh, and of course, they're still holding on to that one uh, because free energy would open up well, it would open up a total can of worms, but you know we can perhaps get into that a little bit a little bit later. Uh, energy, frequency, and vibration. Uh, the different dimensional worlds are different wavelength universes, and as you go up the dimensions, what you come to is a higher vibratory world, a shorter, much shorter wavelength, and uh, uh, higher vibratory uh, world means that. Uh, as you raise your vibratory rate, you are now becoming in harmony with all of life everywhere. And you move out of the separate state where you don't connect the dots and you don't see wholeness and you think that you're just a lonely entity just wondering what, what you're doing here, what life is about and all of that, to the full realization that literally isn't, there's nobody else out there. There's really just one consciousness. It's, it just all began with a thought and... Uh, uh, you can call it the infinite creator, whatever you will, but the holographic nature of reality suggests that, uh, well, let me put it this way. If you take a hologram and cut it, let's say, into four equal pieces, and then you shine a laser through each of those four equal pieces, what you're going to get is a smaller version of the whole. Uh, and, and so the whole is contained, you can cut it into a thousand pieces if you want, and you're still going to get a smaller version of the whole when you shine a laser through each one. So I very carefully in my books unpack the reality as such that uh, we do live in a holographic universe. And that means you can go in forever, you can go out forever, no matter which way you go, what you're going to get is either a smaller version or a more complete or, or a larger version of, of the whole, of the oneness that, that, that exists. Now, in the higher, higher, higher dimensional worlds, in the higher vibratory worlds, there's no question at all because uh, the beings at that level are heart-based and they're living, uh, they're living in the present moment directly through their connection to source, their higher self. It's functioning fully, accurately, and perfectly. But as you go down into the dimensional worlds, and we live on a planet that for a long time has been in the third dimension, which is a fairly dense place, uh, you tend to miss that. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, for the most part, we've missed it almost completely. There are a few uh, living souls who have 
you know, come to the higher reality, higher re- realization of the of the truth of things. But for the most part, uh, most people most people have missed that. And when you miss that you are living life conceptually. You're not living it as, as a presence. You're living life out of your reactive mind, which does not see the present moment, which does not connect the dots and see wholeness. It sees separation. And so uh, uh, that I am proposing is the shift that we are very much in process of making. And I'm talking about nothing less than a shift in dimensional realities from the relative density of the third dimension into the much higher vibratory world, uh, much shorter wavelength world of the fourth dimension. And I'm saying that, well, it's not me. I'm just drawing on uh, information that is available in at least, you know, I found at least 35 different references to it all over the planet that uh, oh, yeah. they're all talking about the same thing. And, and, and that is that... Uh, well, here again, I'm glad we got two hours, Barbara, because we're going to need some time to really continue yeah. to to unpack this. I just I don't want to just throw everything out right now, uh, although I can, and then just come back to and well, this is you know we need to break this down a little bit, but maybe I've said enough to just you know at least uh, strike people's interests. I hope so. <laughs> <clears throat> well, oh yeah, I'm sure you have. I mean, when you talk about living in a hologram that's information that that has definitely been out there in a lot of different places and it's hard for people who can you know touch themselves and and you know everything feels solid understanding that that a hologram can be very solid and and that that there is um that there are other dimensions levels frequencies above where we are currently um living that are that are in many ways um um, mirror images of where we are now, but with a different philosophical look. On, you know, focus on life. It's not. It's it's not how many toys can you gather. It's being a community. It's you know we are called a family of man. Um, should be and woman, but we're a family of man. Called that intentionally because we are all one family, and and I, I think there is a striving to get back to that concept so that so that joy and peace and love is far more abundant than it is today well that's exactly right yeah and that's and and uh, and i would submit that that's what's happening uh you in your intro suggested that as i as i have said in my book that there's this great uh, galactic super wave that's coming that's coming in and and to be clear, uh, I spend a lot of time in the book really unpacking that, really getting into it, you know, going back to what other cultures have said about about these types of things, and and going back to what uh, uh, was said uh, was communicated back in the 1950s through contact with various ET races, and they're all saying the same thing, you know. Um, just for example, uh, there's references to ascension. And that is moving from one-dimensional reality into this much higher vibratory uh, uh, universe called fourth dimension or fourth density. But there's references to this in at least 35 different civilizations. as You call it into their, into their religious myths or whatever. But, uh, you know, if you, the prophecies of Jesus, for example, 
it's it's consistent with at least 34 other cultures. You can find this in the Quran in the Old Testament, uh, and I had some passages from the old uh, from the Bible in 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 the book that really spell out the nature of ascension. Uh, Native American spiritual tradition, goodness sakes, yeah, that's you're, you're going to find it there for sure. Celtics and the Druids have it. Hindu scriptures have it. They call it the Samvarta fire at the end of the age, and uh, uh, and, uh, and so they're they're all talking about the same thing. They're all they're all talking about ascension, and it's not something that just happens haphazardly. It happens when you come to the end of certain 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 cosmic cycles. And uh, guess what? <laughs> We're at the end of one of these cosmic cycles right now. <laughs> and uh, what it's doing is creating a great displacement process, which I will explain in great detail, which I think would be very useful. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, the um, and this, this does correspond a lot to the progression of the equinoxes, too. And yeah. Well, that's so, one of the cycles, yeah. Yeah. And so that so that and and we have the yugas and we have the you know the different root races i mean it's it's all throughout history as far back as it's recorded and then some that these cycles happen and as far as the dimensions go i truly believe that there are portals all over this planet that that are interdimensional so that those oh, yeah. from higher there realms are. come come and go and and so that that I would think is is part of what the ancient builder race that you're talking about uh, prior to the last well to the flood prior to the flood um, those ancient builders still do visit the planet and you know yeah those well are that the, that all happened about uh, beginning about 2.6 billion years ago so we got to go way yeah. way back to talk about them. But uh, uh, you, you've got to talk about the ancient builder race in order to get uh, really a clear understanding, a big picture understanding, I would say, of just what this is and what it's all about. Uh, so how do we find out about the ancient builder race? Well, thankfully, uh, it's uh, well known uh, in the sacred space program. And oops, I just opened another can of worms there, didn't I? But, oh, uh, I want to go there <laughs> too, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Well, okay. Uh, just just to give a brief overlay of that for just a moment, there's the technology that uh, that we see that's available to us, and then there's the real stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, uh, speaking of space travel. Uh, NASA has been trotting out their tin can technology, relatively speaking, for quite some time and trying to convince us that we went to the moon, the moon multiple times through the Apollo program. Uh, uh, and uh, maybe we did, maybe we didn't. I happen to be a naysayer on that one. Uh, because in order to get through the Van Allen radiation belt, which is 25,000 miles thick, which begins 1,000 miles above the Earth, but you can't even approach it with the current technology that NASA's putting up there. Uh, one of the satellite uh, space stations got about 400 miles up, and the crew members uh, couldn't, couldn't stand it. They were getting 600 miles away, but still too close to this radiation belt, the Van Allen belt. Yet we're expected to believe that the Apollo program, uh, in order to make it through, their capsule needed to be insulated with a minimum of six feet of lead casing. And if that was oh the case, God. they never would have got off the ground. 
yet we're, we're, be, we're being led to believe that we made it to the moon through the Apollo program? Well, I would come back and say, yeah, we've been to the moon many thousands of times, but I don't think it was through Apollo. So that leads us to yeah. the real technology that has been uh, uh, buried in the what, I, what we call the secret space program. And in the secret uh-huh. space program, Oh, goodness sakes. I mean, you know, we're, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we've got a lot of areas to go into here. In the secrets, yeah, let's, okay, let's just, uh, can oh, we come back to the secret it. space program? We can, we we can, can. I, I, I can either take a deep dive into it and then, and then talk about the ancient builder race or, yeah, let's just go into the secret space program. What what the heck? Okay, because uh, yeah, I think, I think thing, a real good one thing. One thing about that was all the pictures that they took supposedly on the moon. There were no stars, uh-huh. and you should have been uh-huh. able to see stars. And uh-huh. there wasn't a one, not one picture that showed stars. Nope, not yeah, one. No. That's right. Yeah, that that and many other anomalies that uh, just when you put it all together really don't add up. Uh, I yeah. I gave a full a full hearing on that in, in my in one of my other books. Nothing in this book is true, but it's exactly how things are, and I had so much fun doing it. That was just a lot of fun to unpack that one, uh, uh, and. Uh, so I, I didn't even mention it in catching the ascension wave, but for some reason it's coming out now. But oh, yeah. uh, secrets, the secret space program, we have to go back way uh, into the 1930s when uh, uh, I first heard about it way back in 1990 during one great awakening I had uh, through a whistleblower by the name of Bill Cooper, and he was talking about it. And what he said is that in 1936, I think he said, the Germans were, uh, they came in contact with a disc. I, he didn't know if it was a crash disc or if it was one that was given to them by certain ETs. Uh, but in the, uh, in, in, I just kept looking at that, and goodness sakes, that, you know, that took many years to fully unpack. It wasn't until I, uh, David Wilcock, bless his soul, he helped me out so much with that, and he gave a he gave a really nice understanding of what really happened there. And uh, what he what he said was that uh, uh, um, well, I'll come back to David Wilcock in a moment, but first we need to go back into World War II a little bit. Uh, there is a guy by the name of William Tompkins. When he was 93 yeah. years old in the year 2015, he wrote a book called Selected by Extraterrestrials, where he revealed that he was in contact ever since childhood and uh, became what I guess you could call a very valuable asset to the U.S. Navy. But you go back to the days of World War II, when uh, Tompkins was just a really young guy, couldn't have been more than 20 years old, yet he was put in charge of uh, uh, of 23 spies who had successfully infiltrated the German secret space program. And what he discovered is that they had been given, they had been given the real technology, the UFOs, uh, you know, I mean the real deal, the real thing, uh, brand new ships and the whole, and how to use them and all the rest of that. And they were also given a place down in Antarctica underneath the ice where they could, where they could store all of this and, and build their ships and, and do their thing down there. 
Well, there's 23 American spies who successfully infiltrated this, and William Tompkins was put in charge of these guys. And the stories that Tompkins had to tell are just nothing short of amazing. Uh, now, to fast forward to 1952, one of the one of the great events that any any documentary you you see on UFOs is always going to talk about uh, the fleet of UFOs that circled the Capitol way back in 1952. But it wasn't yeah. until I unpacked uh, what David Wilcox had Wilcock had to say that it really began to make sense. And what he said was that they were not ETs; they were Germans. And that uh, the Germans, uh, even though they lost the ground war quite decisively, they did win the space roar. And they had been oh, to yeah. the moon, they'd been to Mars and the rest of the planets, you know, is, uh, is even in the 1940s. And so uh, that was all a function of the technology that they had been given. Well, in 1952, they were the ones who buzzed the Capitol. In, a set, in essence, what they were doing was they were signaling the U.S. government, hey, we'd like to make contact with you, with you guys and, and make an offer to you. Now, we in the U.S., even though we had the, uh, the remains of the Roswell crash in 1947, evidently we hadn't figured out how, what, you know, what anti-gravity was and how to use it. And the Germans came along and said, well, we're willing to help you, but we have to sign a treaty. And, of course, they definitely wanted something out of that, and that is exactly what they got. Uh, they were able to combine Operation Paperclip, which most people have heard of, with infiltrating, you know, the CIA and the government and, uh, and, and in ways very, very useful to them and meaningful ways to them, but detrimental ways to the greater good of the USA. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, in his uh, outgoing message in January of 1961, he tried to warn us when he talked about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Uh, and that sense has, uh, you know, basically what he was saying is that that was the, the, the treaty that was signed back. We waited three years until 1955 to, to finally capitulate and said, okay, we'll, we'll go along with you. Probably didn't really have much of a choice. And so the two space programs, the secret space programs, were combined. And uh, it's gotten to the point, Barbara, where uh, William Tompkins says that, uh, that uh, to you know, make a relative long story short, uh, we have not only developed all the anti-gravity technology, had it for a long, long time, but have uh, been not only throughout our galaxy, but William Tompkins, when he was 93 years old, said also to other galaxies. So you try that on for size and then, um, and then contrast that versus what Apollo is trying to tell us what our space program is all about. And you begin to realize that, uh, as William Tompkins said, we've been lied to in just about every way possible. And uh, it's time, it is time to lift the veil and to begin to wake up. And in many ways, I consider my book to be a wake-up call. Not, I'm, not that I'm the first person to bring all this out. I'm not. But I did bring it together and put it together in such a way that probably nobody else has done. And, uh, and yeah, uh, the wake-up call is such that, it, yeah, it can ruffle a few, few feathers. But uh, on the other hand, I believe it's absolutely necessary. And uh, my sense of it is that uh, uh, because we are, 
we are very much in a state of awakening due to the higher vibratory energy that's coming into the earth that, uh, you know, these things are going to be revealed anyway. And if I can jump the gun a little bit and act as a bit of a catalyst, well, I, first of all, I love to do that sort of thing. And secondly, I'm willing to do it. So here we are. Well, I, I think that especially with a secret space program, they don't have much choice. Um, but the corruption that is so rampant in so many areas is, but it's all beginning to fall apart. So that yes, it is. Happily, we're, we're beginning to see, you know, as things crumble, we're beginning to see where there has been corruption, where there has been a misuse of, of funds, and, and certainly at this moment in time, and it, it's only my perspective, but but it feels like the government is bent on destroying the car, the country, not protecting it. And yeah, uh, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. because you know because that's going on, it means that we're going to have to restructure. And in order to restructure, we have to you know go down to the the roots and really make sure we get rid of where the corruption actually started from. And yeah, it's a big task. A lot of it. Oh, it's a deep hole. It's a really deep hole. It's been out there since. Uh, very, uh, I mean, it's a, the rabbit hole goes very, very deep. Really, what we're talking about here is that you go back to the galactic superwave that's coming in. And, and so uh, talking about the secret space program, they're well aware of this. They've taken their ships out there and, uh, and experienced it firsthand. Uh, not only that, we've been uh, we've been warned, if you will, by ET contacts ever since the 1950s that this is indeed what's happening. So now to come back to more of present day, the secret space program, what they said is that uh, the impact it had on the crew members was that the ones who were of a positive nature became more positive, and those who were a bit negative became a bit triggered by it, if you will, and at least temporarily became even more triggered. Well, what it is, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a cosmic dust cloud of much, much higher vibratory energy that's coming in and in, impacting the entire solar system and everyone and everything in the entire solar system. That includes every person right here on planet Earth. And what it's doing is creating a displacement process. Uh, the displacement process is such that the higher vibratory energy, you know, the energy of unity, of joyfulness, of inner peace, of creativity, of inspiration, you know, all the good stuff, unconditional love and compassion and wisdom, all of that is, is a function of the higher vibratory, higher dimensional energy. And it's coming in and creating a displacement process with the denser vibratory energy of fear, uh, which is and uh, and uh, uh, living life conceptually out of our reactive mind rather than a living presence, the lower vibratory energy not only of fear but of frustration and uh, you know all the you know I can go on and on with that and you know um, I think uh, what I mean uh, what it's doing is creating this displacement process and stirring things up both individually and collectively. And so we've been warned or told or advised ever since the 1950s that you can't escape this. It's going to impact every single person on the planet. And if we can learn how to catch the wave, 
which we, I do believe, are in process of doing on an individual level, that means that we will be able to uh, ride the wave, if you will, into the higher vibratory uh, aspects of, of awareness of, you know, unconditional love and truth and beauty and uh, uh, let go of the lower vibratory stuff of resentment and fear and uh, uh, resent, you know, um, you know those, those types of things. Uh, it doesn't mean that the ride's going to be gentle or easy all the time. Uh, <laughs> no. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, if, you know, so there will be some bumps in the roads, but hopefully if you've got new tires and are up to the task, uh, you, can, uh, you can navigate this quite well. Look, it's all contained within each and every one of us. Our innate ability is such that we, you know, we're all connected to source, uh, uh, when we're living life out of a reactive mind, we're quite capable of blocking that, almost if not completely. But uh, it doesn't negate the fact that we still are one with the one infinite creator. And as we raise our vibratory rate, uh, it increasingly becomes a reality. But just one more point before I shut up here for a moment, and that is that uh, it's also affecting everything on the planet, and that is the global darkness. Uh, and so I spend some time just digging into that. Just what do I mean by the global darkness? How did we get to the place to where we are, you know, so 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 relatively bound in fear and limitation? And is there is there outside forces that have had an impact on us who have been trying to uh, keep us that way, to keep us under their control, so that they can, you know, uh, so that they can. Uh, do their thing, which does not have our best interests at heart, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on, but maybe you'd well, like to add something here. Well, throughout history, there have been times when all there was was war and destruction and, you know, conquering and, and powers, you know, power struggles between different nations. And, and you know, we've had this before. Um, I don't know how many times, but but more times than history can count. And so, you know, without really paying attention to it, we're in, into one of those, those time frames. Um, our country is being overrun by people who didn't originate here. Um, we're being invaded, and nobody notices it. And it, it's sort of well, like there are people major... are starting to notice it. People oh, I are sure starting hope so. to notice it. But but when you talk about um, the the individual level of of um, energy that, that that people have, I think one of the things that is so important for people to understand: you can take all the classes you want, you can do all the things you you think are the the right way to to do this, but until you have that ascension, until you feel that ascension as part of you, you can't. You cannot BS the universe. You're either there or you're not. And yeah, yeah. I, I have I have met in my in my long lifetime. I have met a lot of people who talk about they have ascended. They are part of a greater whatever brotherhood or whatever, and and yet they have their hands out to be paid a ton of money to be invited along on the trip, which is not the way you do it. It's it's a, an individual, independent journey you take inside of yourself 
to reach this place inside of yourself to the portal to to love and to sharing and to the magnificent uh, connection with the infinite that we all have. So it, it's it's kind of interesting watching today people they're struggling so to survive. They aren't paying it. They're they're paying attention more to their physical needs than to their spiritual needs and and that that does that takes them out of balance and i'm not saying you don't work hard to get money to feed your family because you do but there's that that other aspect here that is so important that is it doesn't take forever to get to but you have to be focused on getting there and i think that's what a lot of people don't realize yeah, Barbara, the, the first distinction I would make is the distinction between knowing something conceptually and getting it inside you uh, so that you become the living embodiment of what, you're, of what you previously only knew conceptually. Uh, right. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're uh, you know, t- talking about the, uh, the displacement process, how the global darkness is coming to the surface uh, in, and and uh, it's absolutely necessary, not only the global darkness coming to the surface, but the individual darkness within each and every one of us is also coming to the surface so that it can be transmuted into the light of the higher vibratory energy so that it can integrate, if you will, and, and become uh, uh, the, 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 new, the new reality. Uh, and so uh, I go into great detail just about, you know, what transmutation of energy is and integration of energy is. You can use those two terms simultaneously and how it's happening on an individual level and how it's happening also on a collective level and how even though the road can be a bit rough at times, it is absolutely necessary. Uh, because we need, on a, on a collective level, we need to wake up to the reality of, as uh, William Tompkins said, we've been lied to in just about every conceivable way. Uh, that includes, uh, we'll take your pick, mathematics, physics, and you name it. Uh, he said, basically, Tompkins went on to say that everything we think we know is a lie. Um, I don't know, uh, maybe... Maybe that's taking it a little bit too far, but but maybe not, you know. And so we've uh, there is a controlling force that has been uh, that has been on this planet for a long, long time. They're still there, but they're no longer. Uh, the infusion of higher higher dimensional energy is bringing them out of the shadows and into the light to where they can be seen for their controlling and manipulating ways. And so to keep us, to keep us, basically, if you want to control, a, if you're a small group, if you want to control an entire planet, what you do is keep them in fear and ignorance, and you hoard the sacred knowledge for yourself. Well, they've been doing that for a long, long time, but uh, their time is up right now, and uh, they're just playing out their, their, their last hands. They've already lost the game, and they know it, uh, but they're not going to go away quietly. Uh, so uh, we are we are waking up and beginning to realize that we have been lied and controlled in every in just about every conceivable way, and kept in uh, you know uh, in in survival as much as possible. 
You know, if you have to focus on just barely making ends meet so you can pay your bills every month, you don't have a whole lot of time uh, left to think and, and to contemplate, you know, spirituality and the higher worlds and all that. And, of course, that's by design, not by accident. But uh, that being said, there is a great awakening that's occurring, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing that can stop it. Absolutely nothing. Uh, as I suggested earlier, and you did too, we're at the end of a certain, certain cycle. One good way of seeing that is to begin to unpack the precession of the equinoxes, so that 25,000 plus 920-year cycle, uh, to begin to just uh, see what's really going on here and why uh, there is this uh, tremendous infusion of higher vibratory energy that's coming in, that's stirring things up and uh, creating the absolutely necessary transformation into higher consciousness. I think one of the fascinating things about your book <clears throat> is that you talk about darkness and and, um, and fear, and and a lot of people just shove it down. And your book talks about you don't shove it down, you take it out, you expose it to the light, you you dissipate it, until the fear is gone, and then you incorporate it into yourself. So you become more powerful by not hiding it, but by embracing it. And it, it's sort of like you you get rid of the darkness by turning a light on. You become the light, well, and when you turn it it's, on, it's, that it's fear... It's just a universal principle. It's just a universal principle, Barbara, and that is that darkness cannot survive in the presence of light. And what I'm talking about here on an individual and a collective level is that the darkness cannot survive when it meets the light of our conscious awareness. It, it just simply cannot. It gets transmuted into the light. Really, it's analogous in every way to you go into a completely darkened room. You can't see a thing. Uh, but yet, the moment you flip on the light switch, the darkness disappears. Darkness cannot uh -huh. survive in the presence of light. And so as we learn to shine the light of our conscious awareness on the darkness within our souls, we learn that uh, uh, resisting it is not going to work, uh, that uh, quite the contrary, expanding to include it is the only thing that ever has and ever will work. Now talk about uh, living in a culture in which we've been, uh, you know, to be blunt about it, lied to in just about every, in every conceivable way. We live in a culture where it's been considered that, uh, you know, symptoms are bad and terrible and awful, and you get symptoms, well, they're terrible, and you better run and see the doctor just as soon as you can, and uh, the, don't worry, the doctor will fix you. Only problem is that it very ever, it usually doesn't, doesn't get fixed because allopathic medicine is only treating symptoms and never goes, gets to the root cause of the problem. So right. there's some universal principles that I unpack in the book. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to focus on three of them right now. Uh, one of them I call the perfection principle. And what it says basically is that you and I are perfect, yet we have barriers to the experience and the, perfection, and the expression of that, of that divine perfection. And so with regard to those barriers, what the second universal law says is that resistance leads to persistence. In other words, whatever, whatever you and I resist, and fundamentally what we're resisting is the barriers that keep us from the experience and expression of our divine perfection. Whenever you and I resist that, which, and we live in a culture where that's what we've been conditioned to do, uh, and so we don't know any better. 
but resistance only leads to persistence, meaning it only gives you more of what you don't like and what you don't want. Then the third universal law that I unpacked is what I call the harmonizing principle. I gave it, I gave it that name because I think it's the perfect name. And what it says is the exact opposite of resistance. It says that if you can expand to include what previously you have been avoiding, been resisting, uh, then what happens is, is that you develop and discover your innate ability to transform or to transmute that energy into life-enhancing energy so you can get off the dime and move ahead. And what I'm talking about, if you go back to Tesla, if you want to understand the universe, as Tesla said, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Now we come down to an individual level, and we think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. The question is, are we, what, rate, what are, is our vibratory rate? You know, when we're stuck in all the barriers that keep us from experiencing and expressing the divine perfection that we are, that's the first universal law, then we're vibrating at a very dense rate because the fear has taken over, the resentment has taken over, uh, the anxiety has taken over, and you can just go on and on with that. Uh, but as we learn to step out of the resistance principle and begin to embrace the harmonizing principle, then we begin to realize that if we can go into and connect with the energetic component of, of the resistance, then we have begun to discover our innate ability to transmute that energy. Now, I need to unpack that a bit more because what I want to say is critically important to understanding what I just what I just meant by what I just said. And that is that if you stop and think that um, whether it's you or me individually or collectively, because we live in a mind-based world and because the mind is polarized and does not connect the dots and does not see wholeness, and as I continue, that'll begin to, I think, uh, become more and more clear. Uh, what, what, because the mind is polarized, you and I individually and collectively are in a constant state of judgment. And what I mean by that is that we look out at the reality, and if we see an individual and or if we see a situation that does not conform to the idealized standard that our mind is telling us, that this person should be like this or the situation should be like that, and if it doesn't conform to the idealized standard of our mind, then we very much have a tendency to judge it or to make it wrong, as I like to call it. And so every time we do that, every time we make someone or something wrong, there's two components. It's really two different versions of the same thing. The first component is the conceptual. Ah, this person really is bad and wrong. And then we tend to believe our make wrongs because uh, it takes the form then of I'm right and you're wrong. And usually uh, there's a significant degree of emotional charge that's associated with that. Ah, I'm right and you're wrong. And you couldn't, you know, and yada, yada, yada and all that stuff. And then you got the story, the narrative to go with that. So that's the first component. But the second component, which is really the same thing perceived through a different internal sense, is the energetic component the actual sensation or the feeling itself that gets generated from the, from the, from, from the concept, from the conceptual thing. And the, and the conceptual aspect of it is, is you're making somebody or something wrong and attaching emotional charge to it, and what that instantly creates is a pattern of energy, uh, an energetic component in your body that we can simply call a sensation, or even more basic than that, just call it a feeling.
And so because the uh, original thought is a make-wrong thought, this thing or this person really is bad and wrong, the instant generating, instantly generating uh, pattern of energy or feeling can only be an unpleasant feeling. And because you and I are thoroughly conditioned to want to feel good, I mean, goodness sakes, we all do, uh, we all want to feel good. And because we live in a culture where we haven't learned how to consciously deal with energy, uh, we do our utmost to avoid feeling that. Uh, it's called suppression, and I unpack that in great detail in the book because it's really important to know that, you know, we all have our favorite ways of trying to avoid or deny uh, the unpleasant feeling that gets generated because we want to feel good again. Uh, and so uh, the thing is, is that it kind of works temporarily, but over the course of the, of, of, the, of the long haul, it doesn't work at all because every time we avoid and try and distance ourselves from feeling that unpleasant energy, it doesn't go away. It continues to live in the body in the form of what I call stuck energy. And now you stop and think of all the times that you've made somebody or something wrong, and you begin to realize there's a whole lot of stuck energy living in our, in our individual and collective bodies. And so uh-huh. uh, what do you do with that? Well, what I'm suggesting is, is that everything is a function of consciousness, and we, learn to, we need to learn to step away from the resistance principle, that resisting it is only going to give us more of what we don't want and don't like, and begin to embrace the harmonizing principle. And what the harmonizing principle says now, if you can allow yourself to go into that uh, packet of unpleasant feeling uh, uh, energy in your body that is the function of the macron and learn to find a more useful way of relating to it than making wrong. In other words, find a way to allow it on a feeling level to be exactly the way it is so you can begin to feel it fully and thoroughly and accurately and honestly. Then and only then will you begin to discover your innate ability to transmute, to transform what had been life-detracting stuck energy into life-enhancing energy that allows you not only to, uh, uh, to get on with life, but to do it in a way that allows you to discover the present moment. And it's only in the present moment where creativity and inspiration and joyfulness and inner peace and all that stuff exists. Because then and only then, in the present moment, are you connecting with your heartfelt connection to source, your higher self. So I've said a lot there, I realize. I hope some of that got through. <laughs> well, oh, no. I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think my, <clears throat> one, of my, one, of my, one of the places I step on the, on the soapbox about is your creativity. And the creativity is in many ways the fuel of your energy and your life that that moves things along without the connection to creation in order to become creative you have to have that 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 link it has to be there and so well said the connection to creation to be to be creative that's great i love it (laughs) you're absolutely right yeah this is this is one of my soapbox moments and when people uh-huh. yeah, tell well, you're me on the soapbox, you're you're on a roll. Yeah. Go for it. So when people say life is, I'm stuck in life. I don't know what to do and where to go. And my first question to them is, what are you doing creatively? 
and you know they'll say I'm too busy to do creative stuff, and and the answer back is well until you get creative in your life, creation won't move you ahead. So I suggest yeah. you find something creative, and yeah. and it's so true. It is the it's the breath of life. It's what moves us so along. So good. And and it, so good. and you don't have to be Rembrandt or 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 you know. Longfellow, or you don't, it doesn't have to be creative in the sense that, you know, aha, uh-huh, I, can, I can sell these paintings or anything like that. Because I have found, and this is only my own personal whatever, but I have found that when I am being creative for the sake of creation, when I am getting the joy out of creating something that to me is yep. special, it may not be perfect. But if if I get joy out of it, that's all that counts. But if I sell it, if I get money for it, I can't double dip. So I have to be creative in another place in another way without being compensated for it. Well, what what I would suggest is that uh, you're underlining the the shift that uh, that we're in the process of making, and that is that. Uh, uh, it's the shift from living life conceptually out of the reactive mind, which does not know the present moment, uh, does not connect okay. the dots, does not see wholeness. And uh, uh, what I mean by it, it does not know the present moment, what I suggest is that we see the present through the eyes of the past. In other words, we see the present moment when we're living life conceptually through the eyes of the unresolved emotional trauma that uh, uh, that uh, that to some degree everyone experiences beginning at birth and certainly continuing through childhood. And as long as that stuff remains unresolved, uh, you're going to continue to live life conceptually out of the uh, out of the reactive conceptual mind. And so what the mind uh, what the mind is and what it will do is completely block you from the present moment and in so doing completely block you from your heartfelt connection to source, your higher self. And it's only in the present moment, only when the heartfelt connection to source is open, that creativity and inspiration and all the good things and, and joyfulness and inner peace, all the goodies in life, it's only then when they appear. And they appear. You can have them in unlimited abundance, but you have to be present oh, yeah. in order in order to create it. And so that well, I would suggest I think, is the shift. I, I think also when you go from a um, a thinking into a feeling aspect, that's to me where the crossover is. It's not well, I'm that's thinking right. about that's doing. Right. Yeah. So, so that I feel this is appropriate when I'm working and writing something or whatever, I wait for the feeling. And, and sometimes somebody will say to me, well, "Why aren't you doing this?" And it's like the feeling isn't there yet. And when the feeling gets there, I will rip stuff out like you won't believe. But, but I have to be in a place where I have that feeling of a flow through me. And once that yeah, feeling of the, the flow to is source there, right there, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, it's, and it's, it's magical. And the other part about it is if you're wondering am I connected or not, um, the one way that I, I totally have, have, as far as myself, um, have learned um, is that if when you're done doing whatever creative thing you're doing, if, if you are energized, joyful, and excited about life, 
then you've been there. And if you're not, if you're tired and you need to take a nap, then you've been using your physical energy instead of your spiritual energy. Yeah, mind-based creation instead of conceptual creation instead of living presence. That's the distinction. That's the shift right there, absolutely. So well, I think if that, you, look you at know, it, we've... If, if you look at a musician um, with the same training, with the same backgrounds and everything, one of them is a technician and gets every note right, and the other is an artist and is able to paint mm-hmm. with the with the music, and mm-hmm. and I think yeah. it's the same the same premise here. If being technically appropriate is a thinking thing, and flowing and creating magic is a spiritual thing. Well, the truth is we need them both, but uh, oh yeah, but. Uh, but uh, Lynn, I just would well give me a moment to stand in my soapbox, and I'll unpack that a little bit. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, what uh, what what I what I suggested earlier is that you know the mind is conceptual and it doesn't see wholeness, it doesn't connect the dots, uh, but it has to be shown. It has to be shown unity, uh, because in the separate state. Uh, we've got our conceptual side and we have our intuitive side. The conceptual side is living life conceptually out of the mind, is, you know, which, again, doesn't see wholeness, doesn't connect the dots, isn't in the present moment. The intuitive side is a heartfelt connection to source, which only knows unity. It doesn't think it, it knows it on a very deep, innate level. And, uh, uh-huh. But the two sides are in their current separate state are like a bad marriage, you know, uh, just uh, the two partners, one can be speaking absolute honest truth and the other one still cannot hear it. It's going to hear control and manipulation or, you know, something other than what the intent of the message is. So the mind has to be shown and it has to be shown in the only way it can be shown. And that is step by step logically that there is only one creation pattern that moves throughout all of all of the universe uh, there is only one reality there is only one spirit there is only one infinite creator throughout all of it and so you do it step by step uh, uh, I uh, uh, have looked in, at it at, in great detail through the universal language called sacred geometry where you can use that language to speak about anything because it is wholeness. It does uh, absolutely show the holographic nature of the reality, and it does it in a very interesting way that the mind, the logical mind, can grab onto. Uh, So that's one way of showing the mind, which doesn't see and connect to wholeness, that there really is just uh, one spirit moving through all life everywhere. Then and only then can uh, communication begin to happen because the corpus callosum, the connecting, you know, the middle, separating the left brain from the right brain begins to uh, open up and send the communication in a way that the both sides can begin to get it. And so now, now you've got true communication going on. Yeah, you can't. Just because you can't just take the mind and throw it out the window. It's an extremely useful entity as long as it's restored back to its proper role. 
it never ever was intended to be the master of our consciousness. It's, it just assumed that because we made it as such. We fell into a world in which we became totally identified with our mind and living life conceptually rather than as a living presence. So, so it, you know, it's like the mind knew it was never big enough for the task, so it developed an ego and uh, all sorts of righteousness and whatever to try and compensate. But really, uh, the mind is not our master. And if we can restore it back to its rightful role as a faithful servant of our consciousness, this is, this is what I'm getting at. And this is when the communication begins to open up because we're living life out of our true master, our connection to source, our higher self. And now uh, life begins to make a shift from a black and white conceptual world to the world of living color with surround sound stereo. And life becomes an exciting adventure day. I mean, Helen Keller said it perfectly. Uh, if anybody ever had a reason to not want to get out of bed, it would have been her. Yet she said, life is either an exciting adventure or it's nothing. And that is exactly what she was talking about. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so what, what happens now? We're basically third-dimensional looking to, to merge into, evolve into, ascend into fourth-dimensional. Now, is there a fifth, sixth, and seventh dimension, or is oh, there sure is. It? Okay. No, no, so the same pro- no. The same process That's will a great, be ongoing. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, do you, you know, I mean, life is a life is an absolute exciting adventure, and uh, when you're present, it never ends. Uh, there's always something to grow into and evolve into and and, and to become. And if there wasn't. Uh, oh boy, this is going to be so much fun to unpack this. Because uh, there was a time when we, when, when, when there was no veiling. But I just want to throw that out and come back to it a little bit later. Uh, so um, <laughs> I kind of lost my train of thought here. <laughs> I get so excited, carried away. Where was I going with all of this? Uh, uh, there is more like, than fourth dimension. Oh yeah, more than fourth dimension. Thanks. Yeah. Well, let's start with fourth dimension. Uh, there is a document called the Law of One that is just an amazing, an amazing document. Uh, going back to the ancient builder race, uh, it's a series of books. It's also available online. The first Law of One book was, was called The Raw Material by Ra, who is a humble messenger of the Law of One. But Ra is just a name for this collective sixth extraterrestrial source, the ancient builder race, as we call it. So Ra actually is the ancient builder race, and that's where this information came from. And what the law of one makes perfectly clear is that the fourth dimension, or fourth density as they call it, is a world that if you can imagine this, Barbara, is a hundred times, at least a hundred times more harmonious, more joyful, more all the goodies in life than uh, even your very best moments, even your very best moments here in third dimension or third density Earth. I mean, um, that sounds pretty good to me. What do you think? Oh, yeah. But, 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 <laughs> but my, my philosophy is if I'm not growing, there's no point. So okay, put that's, me in paradise, that's where we're and going. Want see, and I want to see what's next. That's where we're going. So it's a hundred times more harmonious, a hundred times more joyful, a hundred times more loving, a hundred times more creative and inspirational than even your very best moments here. But they go on to say, yet it is still only fourth density. There's still fifth, 
sixth and seventh before you transverse this world's and uh, and even then you're only going to end up into a higher octave of universes but in so doing the veil continues to lift in, increasingly so that uh, you become closer and closer and closer to the living embodiment of the one infinite creator life continues to just unpack itself in a way that it just never never ever ends uh, and so the uh, the raw, the law of one materialist coming from this raw, this collective sixth density extraterrestrial source that uh, we know as the ancient builder race. And what they say is that for them, it's impossible, impossible for, th for them to see us as separate entities because they are so immersed in this oneness thing, being six dimensional or six density, that... Uh, you know, their interpre interpretation of the reality is so such a vast upgrade from where we are right now, and it's and still such a vast upgrade from fourth density that we can we can't really even begin to contemplate what what it might be like at that level. But uh, uh, they, uh, oh boy, they have done their thing and then some uh, because if you start unpacking the law of one. It's really good stuff. It is really good. It is, and uh, it it just gives the details. So. Um, one thing, one thing that you know you've you've spoken of is you know there are dark energies that are working against us, um, trying to prevent us from um, attaining this, and yet we have a single source of all creation, and that single source had to create the negative as well as the positive. Yeah, absolutely, and it serves its purpose. And that is just so much talk, to, so much fun to talk about. Because, according to the law on one, there was a time way back at the beginning, in the beginning days of the universe, when, uh, when everyone, every, every, every being, every person on all the different, you know, throughout all the different galaxies, was in full awareness of their total intimate connection to the to the one infinite Creator. Uh, there was no veiling, and so you know you would think, wow, that would be absolutely amazing. That would be totally, completely fantastic. The law of one says, hey, just a minute here. Not so fast. No, it was a disaster, they go on to say. It was a disaster because everybody was just uh, just blissed out, you know, just sitting around for lifetime after lifetime, just totally blissed out in full in full uh, realization on every level of their intimate connection to all that all that is, and so as a result of that, there was no creativity, there was no growth, and uh, 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 somebody at some level realized, hmm, this isn't working so well. Something better be done here. And so what what happened is a veiling was created. Uh, it's just a huge problem. Uh, and so the veiling was is that there was this, you know, we we made a shift from disembodied no form awareness uh, into the belief that we are an individual identity who is uh, cut off from the source and has uh, virtually no uh, no connection to the higher powers within us. Uh, and so uh, this is all out of the law of one. Well, I, uh, yeah. I, to that, I added a quote by a Central American shaman that I thought pretty well sums it all up. And this guy said, well, we are perceivers, we're awareness, we're not objects, we have no solidity, and we're boundless. 
But he went on to say that, well, we forget this, and we entrap the totality of ourselves in a vicious circle from which we rarely emerge in our lifetime. And what he's talking about there is the veiling, that we get trapped into the illusion, the illusion that we're a separate self, and that uh, uh, we get stuck in what the Hindus and the Mayas call Maya. You know, the delusion, the belief that you're an individual, the belief that you're not the whole, that you're not the universe. And uh, we get stuck into what Alan Watts liked to call the game of hide and seek. Hide and seek, one of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite authors back in the day, Alan Watts, brought that out. And what he said was that, uh, you know, it's like... uh, uh, he, you know, he was talking about, you know, before the veiling, you know, God doesn't like to be bored uh, because if you get too bored, there's no creativity and nothing really happens. So in order to keep the game interesting, what God does, the one spirit moving through all life, is he hides him, her and her, him and herself in the form of you and me. Now, if you want to make the game really fun and really interesting, you want to, you know, be sure that it takes a time, a long time, in fact, to, you know, uncover the truth. Because if you found yourself too quickly, that'd be no fun. Uh, You know, you need to let it play out for a while. And you need to go through eons of lifetimes pretending that you're separate from and that you're not yourself, but you're, you know, you're just this individual in disguise pretending to be, uh, you know, some isolated, lonely individual. But after a while, that gets kind of old. And uh, it's time to wake up and, and discover that, well, gee, it was just a game and it was fun while it lasted. But after a while, uh, it might become kind of interesting again to wake up and realize that you are the one in the creator and you're a hologram, a perfectly functioning hologram of the whole. You're creating the whole thing. So uh, that, in a nutshell, is, uh, is what began to happen. And interestingly enough, the universe began to work. Because what it allowed for and what it did was push started to come to shove and creativity and inspiration began to appear. And all good things started happening like music and and uh, uh, creativity in the form of art. And you can go on and on with that began to appear. But there also was a downside. Uh, it might seem to be a downside, but it's also a very necessary downside. And that was the appearance of negativity. And as awful as bad and frustrating as it might seem at times, in the larger scheme of things, in the context of oneness, it's there because it needs to be there because it creates this push-pull that uh, just like you and I have shared, you know, life has to paint you into a corner sometimes in order to convince you, if you will, to wake up enough to make some necessary changes in your life. And that's the value of negativity. Well, yeah, and and it is it's a challenge, and and actually I have found that that every challenge that I have had to face in my life, while being a difficult time, was an exciting time because it was a challenge I knew I could overcome. It was just a matter yeah. of how, and that draws on your creativity. Yes, absolutely. And that again speaks to the nature of the shift that needs to be made. And that is that instead of letting the challenges stop you, you learn to use them to your advantage instead of allowing them to keep you in uh, really what I like to call uh, 
uh, victim consciousness, where you've given your power away to such an, such an extent that you're quite convinced that none of it lies within you, so you're reduced to looking to outside sources to try and show you the way to go. And so the challenges then are insurmountable. They will stop you. But the shift is that if you can take what previously would have stopped you and learn to use it as as an opportunity so that you become empowered by it, so that you move through it, now you're 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 in the zone, you're humming. And so you are using your creative powers. You're learning to connect to source and learning to transmute the energy that previously stopped you into life-enhancing energy so that you can move ahead again. And life becomes an exciting challenge. Uh, oh, challenges yeah. are to be embraced, not not to be not to be shunned. Oh, I, I know. There were... There have been a number of times in my life when somebody said to me, you can't do this, I'll do it for you. And then it's, then after the first time, I, I said, this is ridiculous. I, I'm fully confident with most of my marbles. Why can't I learn this? And, you know, it, it, it's, it's saying to yourself, I can do this. You know, I, it may be a struggle, and I may not do it as well, but I can do it for myself. And I think... Since since I had an experience in which somebody told me I couldn't do something and they they literally stole my website and and um, I had to get somebody to hack back into my own website to get it back and it was because I had listened to somebody telling me I couldn't do something and I had actually believed them and I don't believe that anymore. Um, it's you know I may not want to learn something, but I can if I have to, and I think that's a point that I think most of us have to come to that that you can you can do almost anything, but but you mm-hmm. have to be willing to put the work into it, and you know with with this wave coming at us, I think most people are 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 feeling the challenge and not knowing what to do with it or how to do it, and so. Where do they look for, you know, you know, people who saying, I know things are crazy, I know things are coming, I don't know what to do. I have a friend who is buying um, tons and tons of, of prepper food so that when there, there is no food, she's going to have food. But, you know, I tried to explain to her that while this is on a physical level going to happen, the most important part of it is happening in spirit. It's not the physical that is going to get get her. It's the spiritual part. And you spoke about um, about people who aren't were not ready to ascend would be taken off and put on a, a third dimensional world to continue their process and stuff. You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, uh, that would be a fun topic to to, to go into. Uh, going back to the law of one and the ancient builder race, uh, uh, oh, yeah. uh, which is important to to uh, take at least something of a look at, because they originated on Venus, and you go back 2.6 billion years ago, uh, that's when Venus went through their dimensional shift, went from third dimension or third density, if you prefer, to fourth uh, to fourth density, and at the time they only had 38 million people on their entire planet. So evidently conditions there were a bit harsher than they are here on Earth. 38 million people, goodness sakes. 
uh, and and about six million of them made it through into the into the fourth dimension, into the fourth density. They became the ancient builder race. So the question is, well, what happened to the other 32 million people on Venus? And the answer is, well, they weren't just uh, they weren't just tossed out the window, if you will. The infinite creator is uh, is a is definitely a benevolent force, and what happens is that they are taken. They were taken to another third density planet, where they were allowed to, you know, live through however many lifetimes they need to in order to alleviate enough karma so that they too could become ascension ready. And so that evidently is the way that it works. There are certain ET races. Uh, the ancient builder race was, was one of them that very much participated in this process back in the day. But there are certain ET races, certain aspects of the greys, for example. One of their main functions seems to be to come into a planet and, uh, and literally prepare the people who are not third, fourth dimensional ready uh, uh, to clone them, if you will, into uh, uh, into well cloned bodies that would be more capable of handling the third dimensional world that they soon will be taken to, uh, just prior to the shift and all the changes that happen on the planet as it moves from third density into fourth density. You wouldn't want to be here when that's going on, and fortunately, you won't be. You'll either you'll either go with the planet as it shifts uh, into the fourth dimension, into the much higher vibratory world, where everything will be fine and wonderful and a hundred times more harmonious, or you will be taken to another third dimensional planet. Now, the law of one says that typically, and this is all tied to certain, well, the 25,920 year cycle that we know as the procession of the equinoxes. And they say that there are three of these, of these 25,000 plus year cycles to be aware of. And that is that at the end of the first 25,920 year cycle, typically on a planet, on a typical planet, about 40% of the people ascend into fourth density and the remainder will be taken to another third dimensional planet, where, as I said, you know, uh, they will be given however many lifetimes and reincarnations it takes to become ascension ready. So that's at the end of the first 25,900-year cycle. At the end of the second cycle, the law of one says that uh, most everyone who was left, who didn't make it the first time, will make it into fourth density at this time. Uh, and uh, at the end of the third cycle, uh, if there's anybody left over, uh, the entire planet will be, as they say, harvested. And harvested means that everybody will be taken off the planet, uh, hopefully into fourth density. But if there's still someone who's not ascension ready, they again will be taken to another third dimensional planet. Okay, with that said, what happened here on planet Earth is that after the end of the first 25,000-year cycle, nobody ascended. Oh, well, hello. <laughs> At the end of the second 25,920-year cycle, only 157 people ascended, and they all stayed with the Earth and became ascended masters. Well, here we are at the end of the third cycle, and the great question is, what's going to happen now? Well, that's just creating a whole lot of stuff to unpack because uh, 
Uh, first of all, there's the question of the earth changes that uh, are, are likely to happen, although it's not chiseled into stone. What causes that? And then there's the question of who's going to make it through into the higher worlds and who isn't. What will happen to those who aren't? They will be taken to another third dimensional planet. And those who are ascension ready uh, are going to be taken into the fourth dimension. So to backtrack that a little bit, uh, uh, the usual scenario is that there will be earth changes, which are, you know, in the cosmic, from the cosmic viewpoint, it's really not that big a deal. It's just the necessary cleansing that happens has to happen because what it is is an outward iteration of the internal uh, uh uh, disharmony, if you will, that we've been living through on an individual and collective basis for a long, long time now. And so it manifests itself out there, too, in the form of pole shifts and also in the form of what is is traditionally called a solar flash, uh, where, well, to look at uh, what actually happened on March 24th of 2017, on uh, Proxima Centauri, our closest neighbor, 4.2 light years away, uh, it was observed from Earth here that for a period of about 10 seconds, uh, the sun, uh, Proxima Centauri, increased in brightness by about a th uh, to about a thousand fold. Well, that's enough to do uh, to turn everything on a third dimensional planet into a crispy critter for sure. Uh, and uh, and it, the whole thing happened over the course of about 10 minutes. What it is is a solar flash. And usually it happens as third-dimensional planets are ready to go 4D because it's a necessary, it's a necessary cleansing. It's not seen as in the higher life forms as a big deal at all. But uh, with that said, you wouldn't want to be here because if you were, you wouldn't survive it. Uh, it's going to activate all the underground volcanoes, the uh, mid-Atlantic ridge, the undersea volcanoes. Uh, uh, sulfuric acid is going to rain in the skies. Uh, there's going to bury the earth between 40 to 400 feet of rock. And you wouldn't want to be here. And don't worry, you won't be. Uh, the third density aspect of the planet needs some time to recover. Let's put it that way. Uh, and... Uh, so it can become habitable again at you know at some date in the future. But what happens in the interim is that uh, uh, those who are ascension ready uh, will just you know life will life will you just go into this higher vibratory world. Life is great. It's a hundred times more harmonious. Uh, and those who are not are taken to another third dimensional planet. So all of that stuff is just. Uh, well, what uh, creates the shift of the ages? Now, hopefully, uh, hopefully we're we're uh, on the optimal timeline where the earth changes, the violent earth changes, do not have to happen. And if we can continue to make this shift, make this dramatic transformation individually and collective, in, individually and collectively, then we can do it in a very harmonious way. And of course, that's the that's what's bringing us into into present time reality here, where we're in the midst of we're in the midst of all of it. Uh, what I allude to, and I'm not the first one who do, does it, but you know, amongst other people, we call it the dark night of the soul, where all right. this uh, all this displacement is happening, and it's creating some, you know, 
some rather bumpy moments for just about everyone. But uh, it's important to learn that everything is a function of consciousness. And I suggest that learning how to discover and master our innate ability to transmute energy is really key in all of this. So it enables you to 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 get on with it. One of the okay, things I need that to... I... Yeah, take a breath. Um, yes, I need to one take of... one. <laughs> and I will. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that... Um, I, did, I noticed was not mentioned in your book and would, would to me be a very important thing, not that, it, not that it matters in the grand scheme of things, but I think it does in a way. Um, what about the animals? Because they are, you know, on a spiritual level, I, I, can, I certainly uh, can relate to my animals. I, I, I can see how animals and humans can interrelate and they can be of great benefit to one another. So are you killing off all the animals on the planet when you do this ascension thing? No. <laughs> no. Animals are a great blessing. One of the one of the one of the great things that's happened here on planet Earth is that we have such an incredible variety of animals. Uh, some of my very best teachers are animals. Uh, I talk in, in my book about, in, in a bunch of my books, about how one of my greatest teachers of all time uh, was my cat named Freddie, who showed me just by pure example the shift that I had to make. And that is uh, what, I'm, what I mean is I had to shift from, uh, from, from making my back injury wrong and resisting it, which is you know all I really knew how to do, to going with the flow of it. And the way that showed up is that way back in the day in 1980, uh, Freddie uh, uh, became paralyzed. His two rear legs were just totally, completely paralyzed. He couldn't move them. Uh, but the beauty of it all is that he didn't. He he was still Freddie, you know, he, totally present and just in the moment of life, and just his his heartfelt, loving self. In that sense, absolutely nothing had changed for him. He was still being my very best friend, good old Freddie, and he could he could inch himself forward. He could move around a little bit, and uh, you know he was getting by. Uh, but the one who was upset by it was was me, and I just kept thinking this is so unfair. Why why did this happen to Freddie? Uh, but it turned out to be one of the greatest teachings I've ever, probably the greatest teaching. Uh, I, uh, I'll continue with that by suggesting that Freddie and I were sitting back in our in the backyard in the patio one fine day, and uh, it just began to dawn on me. It just grew within me, and it just began with a with a heartfelt thought that there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't be totally and completely healed. It just grew and it grew and grew and it grew until I felt it and I knew it with certainty throughout every cell of my inner body. And uh, and it, in that moment, it became a reality. Literally in that moment, Freddie was completely healed. It's just like he and never suffered from paralysis again. And so, needless to say, I was, I was, I was, I was quite pleased. But that's only the <laughs> beginning, <laughs> because a couple of weeks or so later, he came back with from one of his daily adventures throughout his territory, and everything was just fine, except one of his eyelids was shut, completely shut. 
And he couldn't open it and did not open it for about two weeks. And the reason he didn't open it is that when it finally did open, uh, it revealed itself to be not an eyeball anymore, but more resembling a piece of dead meat, just a piece of dead flesh. And so, oh, goodness sakes, uh, almost the exact same scenario happened again, totally spontaneous. I didn't think it. I didn't plan it. I went through the same poor Freddie, and I was, you know, upset and feeling sorry for him and all that. Why him? And uh, and in virtually the same setting, uh, in the patio, in the in, in the in the evening, I uh, sitting with Freddie, and the same thing happened again. It grew and grew and grew as an inner feeling, an inner realization, until I knew and felt with certainty in every cell of my body that there is absolutely no reason why he cannot be perfectly and completely healed. And in that moment, his eyeball opened, and what what I saw was a completely normal, healthy, healed eyeball. And wow. uh, uh Yes, that's right. <laughs> wow. And... Uh, you know, I kind of pinched myself every once in a while and wondered, did that really happen? And the answer is, yeah, it absolutely really did happen. There's more to that story, but I don't know if I want to go into it right now, except to make the point that what it served to me was an absolute catalyst in my awakening, in my understanding, when finally I began to realize, and it took me about 12 years to fully unpack that, but I finally began to realize that resisting and making my back wrong was only giving me more of what I didn't like and didn't want, and that I got to find a better way of relating to it. And I began to see that Freddie, uh, even in the moment of what I considered was, you know, to be a terrible predicament for him, didn't seem to be bothering him at all. He was just being Freddy, joyful and loving and present and living by pure example. And suddenly, in a certain in a certain moment, it just clicked. The inner light bulb went off, and I just realized, my goodness, I've got to stop fighting, I've got to stop resisting, and I have to start finding a way to embrace what, you know, I've been fighting for too many years now, and that hasn't worked. And what it showed me is that by going into, and I'm talking about the feeling level, and man, I got to tell you, it did not feel good to be crippled and half paralyzed, did not feel good at all. But I had to find a way to go into feel it and stop making it wrong and accept the feeling as it is, whether I liked it or not. And as I learned to do that, I began to to realize that there's an alternative to resistance, and that's what I call the harmonizing principle, and uh, uh, that uh, it began to completely shift my life. And I, out of that, began to discover my innate ability to heal myself. So I don't know what got me off on that tangent, but I'm kind of glad it did. <laughs> <laughs> I well, forgot I what your question the, I was. I asked about the animals. Um, Oh, oh, yeah, such a, look, the animals are going to be taken care of. Do not worry about the animals. They're one of the greatest gifts, if not the greatest gift that that we have on our planet. Oh, absolutely. No worries. I I don't think that I can remember a time when I did not have a pet. Um, Just, just, there's always been an animal in my life that, that, has been a friend or in, in some yeah. cases more than a friend um, yeah. <clears throat> you you talk about um, breath alchemy 
and and speak highly of it and 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 teach it. As a matter of fact, you want to go into a little bit about what it is and how it can help to benefit you. Yeah, I've already described it with the, with the absence of one uh, one element, and that's uh, the breathing element, what I call circular breathing. And so, uh-huh. but the essence is, is has already been described, and that is that we need to learn to shift out of resistance resistance into acceptance of what is. In other words, we need to learn to embrace the harmonizing principle, and when we begin to do that, life begins to shift, and that is the essence of breath alchemy right there. Uh, I break it down further uh, into what I call the five. Uh, what do I call it? The uh, the, <laughs> the the five steps not come on. I forget it. It's just the <laughs> yeah the, the harmonizing the five step harmonizing process is what I call it. Uh, I've been getting all, going all over the place for almost two hours right now, so I get a little. You're, you're uh, doing good. Little, you're doing good. Yeah, I uh, just got a little uh, brain crap there for a moment, but I better call it the five-star harmonizing method because I'm the one who coined the coined the term. And what it is is it's putting it all together by suggesting that. And I can't, you know, I uh, I can't give you circular breathing in the book, but I do the next best thing and go into great detail about, uh, you know, just how to harmonize uh, instead of resist. And so it's basically combining a circular breathing rhythm with complete relaxation and opening up your inner feeling sense. Let's just forget about the breathing for a moment because uh, in order to really learn that, that requires one-on-one uh, work, and uh, which you know I'm willing to do for anybody who's welcome. And uh, but I also want to help the greatest number of people that are that are listening in. You say you reach about half a million people. Well, I can't. I cannot you know, work individually with half a million people. So to do the no. next best thing is that I want everybody to know that you can create uh, you can create literal miracles in your life if you learn to embrace the harmonizing principle. And that is instead of resisting what you're feeling because it doesn't feel good, uh, you learn to embrace it. You know, talk about your fears beginning to manifest, anxiety beginning to manifest, all of which is beginning to manifest in these accelerated times. That's the displacement process. All of that feels like something in the body. And it's an unpleasant feeling because, it, because we've been making it wrong. And we never stop to consider that. But stop to consider for a moment that if you can learn to shift your relationship from making it wrong to finding a way to let it be, and in so doing, relax into the feeling by opening up your inner feeling sense to let yourself feel it and go into it and explore the subtle changes moment by moment, you can now begin to give yourself a thorough and accurate and honest and complete experience of just exactly what it does feel like, and that's what allows the energy to transmute. And even if you do not know circular breathing, you can create uh, a great deal of trans- transmutation of energy or integration simply by embracing the feeling and allowing yourself to feel it fully and thoroughly and accurately and honestly. And I cannot overemphasize the importance of that. It can begin to dramatically transform your life. And what it does is it takes you out of the uh, living life conceptually, uh, out of your reactive mind, and puts you into the uh, heartfelt present moment, the heartfelt 
uh, uh, present moment, that is your connection to source, which is only available in the present moment and opens up your connection to source, all that is. So that creativity and inspiration and joyfulness can begin to, can begin to move through you. You don't think it, you live it, you experience it. And uh, exactly. another, another way of saying it, Barbara, is we need to make the shift from living life conceptually to realizing that life is experiential. And for the most part, we don't make that distinction when we're living out of our reactive minds. But life is exper- to be experienced. It is to be felt. And when you're feeling life, you're in the direct experience of it. And when you learn to discover your innate ability to transmute energy, now you can open up your inner feeling sense and be present, experientially speaking, in life. So it's a distinction between knowing something conceptually and knowing it as a living experience. That's the the exciting adventure that Helen Keller was talking about. Well, yeah, I talk about that also, in great detail in the book. Oh yeah. <clears throat> well, it's sort of it's uh, it's it, it's more than a knowingness; it's a beingness. Yes. And and I think that's where so many people get caught because because they aren't. It's sort of like you're you're a parrot or you're a prophet. If you're repeating chapter and verse from rote, then then you know you know what you're repeating, but you don't understand it and you haven't lived it. And if you yeah. take that concept, integrate it into who and what you are. And then express it with your own added William wisdom and and philosophy. Then you become the prophet because you're taking something that's old and making it new. And that's what your whole process of the wave is, taking us from an old paradigm and allowing us to trans transmute, to transition, to ascend to a different paradigm that is more open. Well, living and out of the our, living out of the heartfelt presence of oneness. Uh, that's the shift right there, uh, and you know, uh, I looked at uh, I looked at some of the work of the uh, Institute of Heart Math, and some of their work is really pretty good because what they've discovered is that the by far the most powerful electromagnetic field in the body is the heart. There's a whole lot more nerves going from the heart to the brain than coming the other way. They've also shown that it has its own innate intelligence and it has its own nervous system. Uh, it has a sensory organ. It's capable of decoding and encoding information. And it, uh, what it is, it's intuitive knowing. It's intuitive knowing. We feel intuition. We feel it through the heart and through the heart center. The brain, by contrast, thinks, yet the heart knows and that knowing is innate intelligence. It's not memory or thinking. It's knowing. Uh, you know, they, they go on to, they've, they've established that the, the fact that the heart, catch this, it generates 60 times the electrical output of the brain, and then it connects to the heart chakra to the higher levels of awareness, and this is intuition. This is the heart. This is why intuition knows, because it connects you to source, connects you to all that is. And so that, in so many ways, is the shift that we have to make from the reactive mind, which does not know the present moment, to the present moment that is only experienced in the, in, 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 through, through our heartfelt connection to source. Yeah. Uh, yes. Back in the day, 
in the mystery schools in ancient Egypt, this was the stuff that they were working with and they were practicing and that they were spending 24 years and two 12-year schools uh, working through and, and, and getting people to make this shift so that they could be reconnected to wholeness. And when you're connected to wholeness, uh, life really begins to show up. Uh, I, I, I just got, got to throw this out in the time we have remaining. Uh, uh, I uh, first heard about uh, Ignatin through uh, his 12-year mystery school called The Law of One, which led me to the document called The Law of One. But in the, in the mystery school, uh, what, what I'm told is that the Egyptians were able to perceive and identify eight completely different separate personalities and that they together make up the entire personality complex of, you know, of us as a spirit when we first came here. And as spirit, we go through each of these eight personalities in our first eight lifetimes. And then we continue to reincarnate and we develop favorite ones. One's male and one is female and they become dominant. But uh, going back to Ignatius school, well, they took 12 years to pass through each of these eight personalities. And at the end of this 12-year school, well, they'd have what you might call a conference with these eight personalities and in so doing, reestablish wholeness and wisdom because their final initiation was the great initiation into ascension, which happened into, in the king's chamber in the Great Pyramid. Well, uh, there's a, another interesting bit of information that uh, I learned from a guy named Dr. Michael Newton, and he's got his analysis, and he's got his afterlight analysis books, and he's talking about how in any one lifetime, we're really only going to have about 15 to 20% of our soul's energy available to us, and the rest of it is in the higher realms. So we got 80% or more of that is in our soul, who's really what we are, yet we don't even know about it. Now you go back to the mystery schools in Egypt, and this is what they were doing. They were giving themselves just an unimaginable consciousness boost with this understanding so that they were able to remember that they were indeed that person who has had multiple incarnations and that uh, each identity, each incarnation is only a very small portion of their true nature. And in preparation for ascension in the king's chamber, which was kind of useful, they were began to become, they were now becoming the living embodiment of being this disembodied consciousness that had been doing the work behind the scenes the whole time. So, you know, if you can imagine that uh, you are uh, there, there's your higher self, you're the rest of the 80% of you behind the scenes that's directing the whole show that in our reduced state of consciousness we're not even aware of, but in our expanded state of consciousness as we go into fourth density, or if you were in the Egyptian mystery schools as you were in the ascension chamber in the king's chamber, uh, you became the living embodiment of all of this. So that's some sense of what it might be like to make the shift into fourth density where life uh, as the law of one again points out, is a hundred times at least more harmonious than even your very best moments right here. And they go on to say that, you know, the former life we had in this life, in this world, uh, it just won't even come to mind because now it's just indistinguishable from uh, from 
you know, from from the greater whole, uh, the greater whole of who we are is just so much more interesting and so much f- more fascinating that all the trials and tribulations that we went through here just dissolve into <laughs> probable nothingness because they're just, relatively speaking, totally insignificant. So that's that's a taste of of what's of what's of what's coming. And I'm suggesting that this is something that we're all going to live through in our lifetimes. Well, not me suggesting it, but, you know, references to it in at least 35, uh, 35 other cultures and uh, first uh, and being presented to us through ET contacts as early as the 1950s. So it's all there and it's all available to us. And uh, hopefully I... Well, I'm doing everything in my power, and I know you are too, to get us on the optimal timeline, so that we can all ascend as one, as one, as though you know, uh, we're all going to go through into the higher worlds, and life becomes a truly exciting adventure, living life what? happily ever after. What? Yeah. Amen. Go ahead. Um, what? What do you suppose happened the first time that nobody ascended? Where was humanity at that time? Yeah, okay, that takes us back to the ancient builder race. And uh, uh, do we have time to get into that? I think we do. Uh, You've got to go back 2.6 billion years. Now, the ancient, to begin to unpack that, I mean, uh, the ancient builder race was very, you know, I mean, now they're six-dimensional beings. To say that they're benevolent beings is, you know, an understatement. Uh, They... uh, um, they um well uh they began to colonize not only on planet earth here they originally went to antarctica which was not buried under 2 miles of ice at the time uh they uh, built an underground city the ruins of which are still there today they also built a great pyramid which was at least double the size of the one at at at, at giza and so but they didn't stop there they went out to and colonized all throughout the local star cluster of 52 uh, local, you know, local stars in our in our local system, if you will. And uh, they also, because they were benevolent, kept the peace for about two billion years, and they did it in a very ingenious way. Uh, uh, they, uh, well, I don't. I think we've all seen Star Wars. I mean, the three three original ones, and so I think everybody is familiar with the uh, the, um, the what they, what do they call them? The Empire, the dark side, and their uh, what did they call their their hollowed out moon? The uh, the Death Star, yeah, Darth yeah. Vader and the Death Star and all of that. Well, I think that George Lucas was definitely fed some inside information. He almost certainly was, because what it was doing was was mimicking what the uh, ancient builder race was doing. But the difference is is that the ancient builder race was using using it to keep the pace, to keep the peace throughout the local local 52 star cluster, not to go out and conquer and control other planets like the Empire was doing in Star Wars. So just a slight difference there. Uh, and they yeah. were able to successfully keep the peace throughout local 52 star clusters for 2 billion years. That's pretty good. But uh, something happened about 500,000 years ago, and one of the, one of the planets in our solar system, uh, which was called Maldek, also known as Tiamat, well, interestingly enough, it's not there anymore. It's the 
uh, it's the uh, the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. So what happened? Well, they, to cut to the quick, they were became infused with negativity, and somehow they were able to hijack these literally hollowed-out moons, and our moon is one of them, I would submit, where the ancient builder race discovered how to hol- not only hollow them out, but use the technology in such a way to keep the peace, to create a defensive shield, if you will, that successfully kept the peace for a long, long time. But the um, people from Maldek, known as the progenitor race, became, as I said, infused with negativity, and they decided uh, that, hey, it would be a good idea to hijack these these things, and in so doing, use them to go out and conquer, conquer and control other worlds. Well, cut to the quick, uh, they were not able to not only be successful, but they ended up destroying completely their, their planet. Like I said, it's become the asteroid belt between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter. Uh, so uh, uh, they did not survive. And uh, uh, the problem, if you will, is, and it was, did kind of become a problem here, because even though they were bad guys, so to speak, uh, life is benevolent. And so even though their planet was destroyed, they had to be taken somewhere, most of them whom were taken here to planet Earth. And so you could say then that Earth became the home of a bunch of backstabbing individuals who were more interested in what's in it for me than what's in it for the, for the greater good. And there's another way of looking at the shift that we have to make. And uh, most of them were so infused in negativity that they didn't even incarnate as third-dimensional beings. They had to become Bigfoots for a number of lifetimes uh, to work through enough karma. I mean, you know, this is sounding so incredible, it couldn't possibly be true. Uh, Yet it is documented in the Law of One, and it's well-known throughout the secret space program, and it's well, other people know about it, too. William Tompkins talked about it, and many other people uh-huh. did. So I kind of think there is some basis in truth here. Uh, and so uh, we became this planet that got held back to a very significant degree. And like we said, nobody has been ascending, been ascending here. Uh, because unlike most, most third-dimensional planets, uh, we became sort of a dumping ground for beings who just weren't able to make it elsewhere and had to come here, had to come somewhere to work through their karma. But hopefully uh, we're learning from, and the infusion of higher dimensional energy is such that we are able to learn and grow from our past mistakes and use them as opportunities and to ascend ultimately into the higher dimensional reality. And I do make the case for it is, it is, it is quite likely that even though it is unlikely, as the law of one says, that we will all ascend as one, it is definitely possible. And to deny the possibility is to deny the infinite possibilities of the moment. So they certainly include that as a possibility. And uh, uh, I think there's a very likely possibility that, uh, that, we are, that we are doing it as we should. And I do think, uh, you know, here again, Uh, to get to the bottom line. I think that uh, 
Even though we are currently going through this dark night of the soul, I do think that events will present themselves in such a way that there will be a great awakening. And the great awakening is that uh, I think that we're looking at a transformation that is going to show up in ways that you can't, you, you, you can barely even imagine. You know, it's just like if you go to a caterpillar and say, hey, uh, you, you want to learn how to fly? The caterpillar would say, <laughs> you're nuts. Uh, we can't fly. Uh, but yet on the other side of the shift, the other side of the transformation, the butterfly, the monarchs, for example, are busy flying all over the planet. So we can't know the nature of the transformation on this side of it. Yet there is plenty of evidence to suggest that there, we are very deeply in that process. And when we do make that shift in the interim, we're going to be living here still for a few years on third dimensional earth through what you and I would call nothing less than a golden age where the veils will be lifted and where the free energy and the uh, 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 UFOs and all the rest of that will be presented to us and we'll be able to live in a pollution free environment, not with electrical vehicles and all that nonsense, but with uh, when when you've got uh, pollution-free energy, uh, you can do most anything you want, and it is pollution-free in total harmony with the earth. And I do believe that the darkness will be is being is being completely revealed, completely exposed to be transmuted into the light. So in the interim, we're going to be living a golden age here, all in preparation uh, for the planet ascending into fourth density. So fasten your seatbelts. Yeah, uh, we're in a <laughs> bit of a dark night of the soul right now, but I do, I'm a total optimist, you may have noticed. I do really feel that uh, it's everything, everything is, is evolving as it should be. There's no accidents. Everything is evolving as it should be. And I think that uh, this is the time and this is the place. And uh, uh, life is making the shift from black and white to becoming living color, uh, from just nothing to an exciting adventure, as Helen Keller pointed out. So, Absolutely. Um, uh, this is the place to well, be. Yeah. <laughs> I just noticed our time. If people want to get a hold of you, um, your website is Bob Frisell, F-R-I-S-S-E-L-L dot com. And, um, yes, it is. The book is Catching the Ascension Wave. And um, I, I think it's everything you need to know about the coming Great Awakening. And it's it's an amazing book. You can't put it down, which which is a good thing and a bad thing. And um, <laughs> mostly good, but then yeah. you do have to do things like laundry and eating and working. But um, I found it a fascinating book, and it tied in with so much other material that is out there. It sort of connects a lot of stuff in a, in a way that is very unique and very inspiring. And um, I, I think that um, it, it's, it's definitely worth the read and looking into uh, the breathing patterns that help. And I, I think that most people are going to find it so fascinating they want to go back and read your first book, for one thing, for sure. Uh, I know that well, was I, on my I, list for a yeah, you got it. You got to. The two books are tied together. 
And it's the, uh, I came out with a new edition, the 25th anniversary edition of Nothing in This Book is True, but it's exactly how things are. Yeah, the two books are definitely tied together. Uh, you know, the I can't put it down thing, that's the kind of book that I love, and that's the way I write, with full intention. I, I want this to be so intriguing, so exciting, that uh, people get stuck in the I can't put it down thing. And uh, yeah. I've read many, many books that way, and I love it. It's, uh, it's like, wow, I, you know, it's time to go to bed, ah, but I, can't, I can't put this thing down. <laughs> I just got to keep going. Yeah, you know, uh, life is an yeah. exciting adventure when you're, when you're stuck in the I can't put it down mode. So oh, that yeah. was my no, intention, and I, and I do feel I succeeded. Oh, you did succeed, absolutely. And I, I want to thank you so much. We are out of time, and, and I do... Um, you know, I'm going to have to read the other book, and we'll have to do a show on that one, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can hardly wait. Uh, I can hardly okay. wait. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll do it again. Okay. Well, thank you so very much. I so appreciate your taking the time. And I, I thank you for writing this book, which is really an amazing book. Well, uh, you're welcome, absolutely, and thanks so much for having me. And uh, like I said at the beginning, you know, there's really, really nothing I enjoy more than, in this case, getting to spend two (laughs) hours with you talking about, guess what, stuff I'd be, look, I'd be talking about it, I'd be researching it, I'd be digging deep into it, whether I was an author or not, whether it was my life's work or not. Just so happens I've got the best of both worlds. So thanks for the time together. I truly, truly, truly enjoyed it. It was my pleasure, and we will do this again. And everybody, thank you for joining us. I know we're short on time here, but Mark has a show Tuesday and Wednesday, so do check on on the calendar and see what he has in store for you, because as always, it's going to be fascinating. Take care now.